Well, tonight we are starting a brand new series called Love Revolution, and it deals with three letters that are in the latter part of the New Testament, and they're short letters, but very important letters. The author's name is John, and he is forever known as the Apostle of Love, but it's not what you think. This is not a love that takes you down the road of tolerance, but it's a love that takes you down the road of truth. Because telling the truth is the most loving thing anyone could ever do. John was the son of Zebedee and Salome, and he worked with his older brother James in his father's fishing business. His mother was a sister to Mary, the mother of Jesus, so that makes John a cousin to the Messiah. In his younger years, John became a follower of John the Baptist, at least until that fateful day when his mentor, John the Baptist, looked across the the valley and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And from that point on, John never looked back. His entire life was spent following Jesus from that moment onward. Along with his brother James and a fellow fisherman named Peter, John became part of Jesus' inner circle. Only the three of them witnessed the raising of the daughter of Jairus. Only the three of them stood on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. Only the three of them were near the master when he prayed in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. John was a literal eyewitness to the life and the love of Jesus Christ. Now, he and his brother James, they were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder by Jesus in Mark chapter 3. That's not because they were so spiritually powerful. It's because they were so impulsive and so competitive. These are the brothers that wanted to call down fire on a Samaritan town that didn't receive them in Luke 9. These are the brothers that wanted to rebuke a man casting out devils in Jesus' name just because he wasn't part of their group, Mark 9. These are the brothers who argued amongst themselves about who was the greatest also in Mark chapter 9. And these are the ones who asked Jesus if they could be honored above everybody else in his eternal kingdom by being seated on his right and left hand. That's in Mark 10. So John is not exactly the meek, mild apostle of love when we first meet him in the scripture. Some scholars have made a big deal out of the fact that in these three books that we will study in this series, they've made a big deal out of the fact that John's name doesn't appear in his three letters. My answer is you wouldn't expect his name to appear in these three letters because he doesn't even use his name in his own gospel. Instead, he refers to himself as, quote, the disciple that Jesus loved six times in the gospel of John, probably out of humility rather than name himself. And he was the disciple that Jesus loved, and that love would be tested. John alone remained at the cross, When all of the other disciples scattered and ran, John alone stayed by. John was the one who took Mary, the mother of Jesus, into his care after Jesus' death. John was thrown in prison more than once in the book of Acts. And John knew loss. 
his brother James became the first apostle to be martyred in Acts chapter 12. And now, as John sits to pen these letters, he's an old man. As he puts his pen to paper more than 60 years after the day of Pentecost, he is keenly aware that he is the only original voice left. He is the last man standing, the last apostle of the first century. And John feels that the weight of that sacred responsibility as he unfolds the truth of God for the last time. And he literally, in the five books that, that he wrote, John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the book of Revelation, he literally wraps up the writing of the New Testament. As he sits down to write these three letters that we will study, he knows that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are gone. They wrote their gospels 30 years previous. His friend Peter is gone, crucified, head downward at his own request because he didn't feel worthy to die in exactly the same manner as his master. <clears throat> the prolific pen of the apostle Paul has been silenced forever because Paul was brutally beheaded by the insane Roman emperor named Nero. And all of those martyrdoms, all of the loss of all of his friends and colleagues, those martyrdoms are now 30 years in the rearview mirror. And John has now served as the sole surviving elder of the first century church for many years. And he's watched the tide come in and go out. And he's watched things come and go. And he's watched doctrines true and false. And he's watched brethren true and false. And now he has something to say. All of John's writing, it's amazing. <clears throat> it's crammed into just a few years at the end of his life. We haven't heard anything from him until now. There isn't one of John's sermons recorded anywhere in the New Testament. Peter and Paul have been doing most of the preaching and certainly Paul has been doing nearly all of the writing, but now they're gone. They're long gone 30 years ago. And somebody needs to say something because the truth is being attacked even by those who call themselves Christians. And so the apostle of love picks up his pen. But it's not what you think. This is not a love that will take you down the road of tolerance, but a love that will take you down the road of truth. Because telling the truth is the most loving thing anyone could ever do for you. John is a familiar figure in most of the scenes we remember with Jesus and all the other disciples in the Gospels. And because John is usually there somewhere in the background, most people have a certain image of John in their minds. But I got to tell you, that image has been conditioned by the way he has been depicted in so many medieval paintings. John is always the one who's leaning on Jesus' shoulder, looking up at Jesus with some dove-eyed devotion into Jesus' face. He's almost always portrayed almost as effeminate in his characteristics because after all, those medieval painters, they called him also the apostle of love. But the elder we will meet in these letters is far 
different than the image that the painters and the writers and even some theologians have concocted. This elder is direct and dogmatic. He is absolute and he is authoritative. His words are simple. His writing is bold. His terms are black and white. John writes in clear certainties. Nothing in his letters is vague. He is firmly committed to one goal, and that is establishing truth in the hearts of his readers. Because the church in John's day was struggling with so much false doctrine from so many false teachers. Their message sounded good. Because the message that was floating around in the religious Christian culture of John's day, it was inclusive, it was accepting, it was permissive, it was open-minded, it was tolerant, and most of all, it was loving. And so that message by all those false teachers was embraced by people who didn't want to be tied down to what the scriptures commanded. They didn't want to, to have all that. They wanted to make up their own idea of God, their own version of Christianity. And boy, did they have a label for anybody that believed in the absolute truth of the word of God. You know what they called them? Unloving. That's what they called them. And that is what motivates the apostle of love himself, the beloved elder John, to finally pick up his pen at the end of the first century. Yes, he will write about love, but it's not what you think. This is not a love that takes you down the road of tolerance, but this is a love that takes you down the road of truth. Because telling the truth is the most loving thing anyone could ever do. It is God's love for us and our love for God that are important. It's not only God's love coming this way, but it's us turning around and sending our love back to God. It is a love revolution. And so we begin with 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. <clears throat> when John writes that which was from the beginning, he's meaning for you to hear an echo. He's meaning for you to hear not only the beginning of scripture, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, but he's also meaning for you to hear an echo of his own gospel that he wrote. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And you know this as well as I do. John continues on in the first chapter of his gospel, and he says this, and that word was made flesh, and that word dwelt among us, and because he did, we were able to behold his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John uses the same term as he opens his letter. Jesus is the word of life. In the same way that your words reveal your thoughts and your feelings to other people, when God wanted to reveal his thoughts and his feelings to human, humanity, 
He came in the person of Jesus Christ. He sent his word here so we could understand his thoughts and his feelings. And John was there when it happened. He heard Jesus teach. He saw the miracles. He walked with him and he talked with him and he says in his letter, I even got to handle his hands. I even got to put my hand on his shoulder. I even got to slap him on the back. He said, I got to touch the word of life. He said, for that life was manifested and we have seen it. And we bear witness and we show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and now is manifested unto us. Now God is always revealing himself, folks. God revealed himself in creation According to Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, creation uh, speaks of God's greatness and his handiwork. But creation alone, a mountain or a tree or a river or a lake, creation alone could never tell the story of God's love. And then God revealed himself more fully in his word as the prophets spoke and they wrote it down and, and we start to amass the scriptures. God is telling his story, his feelings, his thoughts more completely. But never mistake it, God's final and most complete revelation was not even just the words on a page of a Bible. The, the, the most great revelation is not the most majestic scene you can think of in creation. When God wanted to fully reveal his thoughts and his feelings, he came to this earth as a man. And the writer of Hebrews would later say it this way. God, who at sundry times and different manners, he spoke in times past, he spoke uh, under the fathers by the prophets, but in, this, in these last days, he's done something else. He's done something different. He's done something greater. He's spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And when he begins to talk about the incarnation, about God robing himself in flesh, what we call the Son of God, he says this, he was the brightness of, of God's glory. He was the express image of God's person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins he sat down in the place of authority and power. He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The writer of Hebrews just gave us a mouthful. He said God was always speaking through the prophets. There's revelation in the Old Testament. You can study the tabernacle plan and learn about Jesus. You can study the prophet Jonah and learn about Jesus. You can study Joseph and learn about Jesus. You can study Moses and learn about Jesus. You can study all kinds of things in the prophets and in the history of the Bible and learn about Jesus. But there's something that God did that was so much greater God wasn't content for somebody else to tell us his story. God came himself to this world and he was the exact representation of God. In other words, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is when you looked at Jesus, you saw Jehovah. When you touched Jesus, you were touching Jehovah. When Jesus ministered to you, that was God Almighty ministering to you. And John, when he wrote his gospel, which really wasn't that far away from the time he would write this letter, 
John recorded these statements by Jesus himself in his gospel. Here's what Jesus said himself. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Jesus said, the Father is in me and I in him. In other words, we're so mixed together, you can't tell where one starts and the other stops. We are one. He said this when he prayed for his people, that they may be one even as we are one. And then he said this, and it frustrated the Pharisees. He said, I and my Father are one. And then when he really wanted to frustrate him, he said this. He took their, their ancestor, Abraham. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And so there was no uh, doubting it with John. There was no debating it with John. He knew that this Jesus he had walked with and this Jesus he had talked with was almighty God robed in a body of flesh. And John loves the word manifested. And we love it too because it's a doctrinal word. God was manifest in the flesh. But John loves the word manifested. He uses it several times. Manifested means to make visible what had been hidden. Manifested means to make known what had been unknown. Jesus was the visible manifestation of the invisible God. Jesus was God's spirit manifested in a human body. Jesus was the word of life, now made flesh. And John said, and I saw it happen. I was an eyewitness. And I want to share that revelation with you. Because to know Jesus is to know God. They are one and the same. And so he starts this letter by saying, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, we declare unto you. Why? That you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John also loves, in addition to the word manifested, he loves this word fellowship. And fellowship means close relationship, communion, intimate association, or joint participation in something. One of our wonderful elders, Brother C.B. Dudley, used to say, fellowship is two fellas in the same ship. And that'll do. That works just fine. Fellowship refers to a mutual acceptance of truth. Fellowship refers to a mutual submission to truth. We're all here. We're all part of this for the same reason. Fellowship is when we share a personal knowledge of God. Together, we talk about Jesus. We sing about Jesus. We worship him together. We pray to him together. We have a personal knowledge of God. And we also share a heartfelt obedience to God's word. We're not here to go through the motions. We're not here to give God a little lip service. We're here because we believe that his word has authority over our lives. So fellowship is much closer than friendship. As the church, as Christians, we can have friendship with everyone, and we should. But we can only have fellowship with those who also believe the truth of God's word. 
Friendship is inclusive. You want as many friends as you can have. It's inclusive. But fellowship is exclusive. Because if they don't receive the truth of God's word, you can have friendship, but you can't have fellowship. And if you want fellowship with God, John says, you must have fellowship with us, with his church, because it is the church that teaches God's truth. He said, and this is the things, these are the things that we're writing to you. Why? So we can burden you? No. We're writing so your joy may be full. You see, God's truth, this wonderful Bible that you have, this truth is not a burden. God's commandments are not a burden. Being part of God's church is not a burden. But when we embrace God's word and his laws and his commandments, that's when we experience the fullness of joy. Joy is not something you can manufacture for yourself. Now you can try to give it a good stab and try to manufacture happiness for yourself. Happiness is dependent on your circumstances. And if your circumstances are just about right and everything's going well, you can temporarily manufacture some happiness, but you cannot manufacture joy. Joy is deeper than happiness. Happiness is temporary. Joy is eternal. Happiness is based on your circumstances, but joy is based on Jesus Christ. Joy is not something you can manufacture. Joy is a byproduct of having true close, personal fellowship with God. And that's why John wants us to know there's a big difference between saying you are part of the church and actually being part of the church. And he says that contrast between just saying I'm a Christian and actually being a Christian, that contrast is as stark as the difference between light and darkness. This then is the message which we have heard of him, and we declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Light and darkness in the Bible have what we would call maybe ethical overtones. John is saying God is light. He is perfect and he is good. But darkness represents sin and evil. And there's no sin and evil. There's no darkness at all in God. And that little comparison right there, light versus darkness, that has some huge implications for those of us that follow Jesus. John 3.19 states that when we were unsaved, we loved darkness rather than light. But now that we've been born again, 1 Thessalonians 5 and 5 says, Christians are children of light. And so, Ephesians 5 and 8 instructs us as believers, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Steer clear, stay away. And 1 Peter 2, 9, that verse that we love, it reminds us that God has called us out of darkness darkness into his marvelous light. We are children of light. Now, darkness is sin in the scripture. And sin cannot exist with righteousness, the same as darkness cannot coexist with light. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area when it comes to fellowship with God. You're either living in the light 
or you're walking in the darkness. There's no middle ground. In fact, John says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, but we're still walking in darkness, we're still doing sinful things, we lie. Somebody say, we lie. Well, we don't, but you, you're repeating. We lie. I hope you don't lie. We lie and we do not the truth. What is the first thing that Christians do when they begin to backslide? They tell lies. That's the first thing they always do when they begin to backslide. They tell lies. First, they start to tell lies to others. They try to make everybody think it's all fine. I'm still walking in the light when all the time in the secret part of their heart, they're entertaining darkness. And then as the sin progresses, it's not just telling lies to others. They begin to tell lies to themselves. They convince themselves that, you know, a little bit of darkness is not so bad. And I've got it handled and I can control it. And, and it's just this little tiny spot of darkness in this remote corner of my heart. And it's no problem. And they start to believe their own lies. First, they lie to others, trying to convince the rest of us, I'm fine. Then they begin to lie to themselves. Because it is possible to live in sin while convincing yourself that everything's okay in your relationship with God. First, they lie to others. John said, if we say we're having fellowship with God, but really we're walking in darkness, we're lying and we're not doing the truth. Ultimately, after they've lied to, them, uh, to others and they've lied to themselves, Christians who backslide, they start lying to God. That's a fool's errand any day of the week, but they try. They have made themselves liars, and now they try to make God a liar. They make up all kinds of excuses. They contradict his word. They believe, I'm the exception to that rule. That doesn't apply to me. That applies to other people, but not to my life. And as they get further and further into the darkness and further and further into that lie that they're telling others and telling themselves and trying to convince God, they become more hypocritical and more critical of other people every day. Those kind of people can sit through a sermon, a Bible study, a service, an altar call without ever being touched by the word of God or the presence of God. See, what happens is, John said, as, as soon as you break off that fellowship and you get estranged and you get distant and you start to entertain that darkness again, what happens is you start lying to yourself, to others. You try to lie to God. You, you lie, you don't do the truth. You start out telling a lie and you end up living a lie. So John said, remember this, God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. And you, people, you, saints, you are children of light. Can I just tell you, you're better than sin. You're better than bondage. You're better than addiction. You're better than perversion. You're better than all that trash and junk that the world promotes and that the world talks about. You're better than that. You are children of the light. You are a child of God. You don't walk in darkness anymore. God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it is marvelous. Oh, my goodness. And so John says, but... If we're not trying to be deceptive, if we're not trying to lie to ourselves, but if we will walk in the light as he is in the light, two things happen. Two marvelous things happen. Two extremely wonderful, astounding things happen. Number one, if we'll walk in the light like God is in the light, 
we have fellowship one with another. We're brought into his family. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. How different it is for people who walk in the light. We don't have to live a lie anymore. We get to live free from sin and guilt and shame. We can simply be honest with others and honest with ourselves and honest with God. We are genuine and sincere and authentic people. And no, that does not mean that we are perfect. Now, you are allowed to do this through your mask. Look at somebody and muffle toward them through your mask and say, who are not perfect? And that's exactly what it sounded like. You need to say it a little bit louder to cut through that mask. Say, we are not perfect. I am not perfect. You are not perfect. That's always the most fun one to say. We're not perfect. Receiving your new nature, this is a news flash. receiving your new nature from God when you were born again did not erase or eliminate the nature you were born with. How many know that's true? How many spouses would raise your hand and say, I know for sure that is a fact what you're saying, Pastor. Would you raise your hand? My wife doesn't have her hand up. Just because we get a new nature, it doesn't eliminate that old nature that we were born with. But here's what John is saying. If we will consistently choose to walk in the light, we get two marvelous benefits. First of all, we get fellowship with God and with his church. And it's that fellowship that brings us joy. It is something to walk through some of the perils and the trials and the tribulations of life and still have joy. And as pastors, we get to see that up close and personal as we try to shepherd and lead the beautiful, faithful people of God. Because there are people in our church family, let alone all the church around the world, that walk through deep valleys. They walk across treacherous mountains. They get through the worst trials and tribulations of life. And they come out the other side and they've still got their joy intact. Why? Because they're walking in the light and walking in the light gives you fellowship with God and it gives you fellowship with God's family and when you feel like your your your, your connection with God is wavering a little bit that's when you kind of lean back into God's family and when your connection with God's family because maybe you're on the road or distanced or socially distanced you feel like that connection's wavering a bit you lean back on God you when you get this fellowship you get it with God and you get it with with his family. But there's this second benefit to walking in the light. This doesn't mean you walked in the light for five minutes and then went back to your old ways. No, this means you consistently walk in the light. You're not perfect, but you're what the Bible calls blameless. 
You're not perfect, but you're blameless because every time you make a mistake, you crawl back on your feet, you raise your hands to God, and you say, Jesus, that was stupid. Please forgive me. I'm getting up. I'm never going back. I refuse to sit here. And God doesn't call you perfect, nor do you call you perfect. And we wouldn't call you perfect. But guess what? God looks at you because you're making an attempt every day to walk in his light and you repent of your sin as soon as it comes to your mind. And here's what God says. They're not perfect, but they're blameless in my sight. As far as I'm concerned, their sins are under the blood. And that's what John says. If we'll walk in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. We get to be cleansed every time we repent. It doesn't make us sinless, but it makes us blameless. Now, for all of you Bible readers that you still read the King James Version, uh, it's an, uh, the, probably the most accurate word-for-word English translation that we have, but it's a little over 400 years old, and so the lingo is not the same as what we use today. If you read the King James Version, anytime you see the suffix E-T-H, F, on the end of a word in the King James Version, F or E-T-H means a continuing action. So what John just said to us, what he just downloaded on us is this. If you will keep continuing to walk in the light, his blood will keep cleansing you over and over and over again. As long as you keep walking in the light, as long as you keep repenting of your sins, as long as you keep uh, your relationship with God, his blood doesn't just do it once, it cleanseth us, continually cleanses us from all sin. Now folks, that's one great benefit to being part of the church and walking in the light. Now, just in case you're an incredibly religious person, John says, by the way, don't you look down your nose at somebody that struggles or falls, fails, makes a mistake, or sins. Because if we say, well, I have no sin, he said, you're only deceiving yourself, and that truth you claim to love, the truth is not in you. If you say you don't have any sin. It's a dangerous thing to be in church so long that you think sin can no longer affect you because sin is subtle and the devil is treacherous. Satan loves to tempt us to build secret little rooms in our hearts to house sin, just little sins, just secret sins, all the while carrying on as though nothing is wrong and everything's great between us and God. Now, when you live in a state like that, that you're hiding some darkness in your life while kind of pretending to walk in the light, your hypocrisy may damage others. But the most damage is done by the lies that you tell yourself. Because light and darkness cannot coexist. Fellowship with God and sin cannot coexist. But thankfully, the Christian, every Christian, has a powerful remedy for sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our secret 
weapon against sin is confession. That as soon as you realize you sin, you confess it to God. That as soon as you realize you did it again, you confess it to God. All God asks that is, is that when we fail, we confess our sins. But here's the catch. To confess doesn't just mean to admit your sin. See, some people, they're pros at admitting sin. Oh yeah, did it again. <laughs> did it again. Think I'm going to do it again in the morning. They admit sin all the time. It's become no big deal to them. But the word confess doesn't just mean to admit your sin. The word confess here literally means to say the same thing. So when you confess your sin, that means you're saying the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin. When I confess my sin, I'm not just saying, hey, Jesus did it again. Sorry, carry on. When I confess my sin, I'm saying, God, I realize that that sin grieves you. I realize that that sin is against your word. I realize that that sin breaks your commandment. I'm agreeing with what God says about my sin. So I don't try to defend it. I don't try to ignore it. I don't try to make excuses for it. I confess it. Confession means being honest with ourselves and honest with God. And if other people have been involved in the sin, confession means being honest with them too. But here's the beautiful benefit. If we confess our sins, then God promises that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible says, John says, he is faithful to forgive us. Because of his nature. No matter how many times you mess up, God is faithful. He will be there to forgive you. But he's not only faithful to forgive you. He is just to forgive you. He is justified in forgiving you. He has the authority and the ability to forgive you. Why? Because of his sacrifice on Calvary. When you confess your sins, Jesus said, I already paid the price for that sin. So thank you for agreeing with me that that sin is damaging and damning to your soul. Now let's get it taken care of. Let's cover it with my blood and let's pick ourselves up and let's go on and do better and I cleanse you from it. As far as God is concerned, everything in your past that you keep worrying about, it's not even there. As far as your sin is concerned, that maybe it wakes you up at night, you have a nightmare about something you used to be involved in. As far as God God is concerned, it's not even part of you anymore because your sin and my sin, every confessed sin, every repented sin is under the blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary and that's why we get to walk in the light and that's why we get to be free and that's why we're not bound with shame and guilt anymore because God has forgiven us and I think even on a Wednesday night with only 50 people in the sanctuary, we could lift up a thanks to God for the privilege of having sins forgiven and placed under the blood shed on the cross of Calvary. Oh my goodness. Thank you, Jesus. I worship you, God. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. John wants to make sure that you don't serve Jesus long enough that you get a little haughty and high and mighty, a little pharisaical, a little self-righteous, 
and you look down your nose at some new believer, some young believer, some new Christian that's struggling. John says it again. If we say we have not sinned, if you say, I don't struggle with sin, I never have a problem with sin, I don't have to worry about sin. He said, not only are you lying, you make God a liar and his word is not in us. John said, don't be saying you never sin because you do make mistakes. Don't be saying you don't have a problem with sin because there are not just sins of commission. <laughs> there are sins of omission. You may not have gone and done something sinful, but you might not have done something you should have done that was righteous. And that's a sin by omission. Now, the Bible very clearly says here, and by the way, this is the apostle of love talking to us. He loves us enough to tell us the truth. Don't be saying you don't sin because you do make mistakes. Now, the fact that the Bible tells us that saints sometimes sin. Would you say that those three words with me? Saints sometimes sin. The Bible says that. The Bible doesn't say that to discourage us. It tells us that to warn us that saints sometimes sin. And here's why it's a warning. Because sin is the enemy of fellowship with God. And sin is also the enemy of the wonderful fellowship we have with each other. Sin hurts fellowship. John mentions sin nine times in this little section of his letter. And he illustrates how important the subject is by using the stark contrast between light and darkness. That's how stark it is. If you're sinning, you're in darkness. A little sin, little darkness. Darkness and light can't coexist. That's one contrast, light and darkness. But he uses another contrast in this first little section of his letter. And it's the contrast between saying and doing. It's easy to say I'm a Christian. It's easy to say I'm walking in the light, but are you really? Four times John uses the phrase, if we say. If we say we have no sin. If we say we walk in the light. And he's making it clear that the Christian life must not be just talk. It must be a walk with God. If God's word is not dwelling in us, John says, then we're just a bunch of religious talk. We don't have the reality of a relationship with God. Now, John is the apostle of love. No joke. He's an elder at the end of the first century. He's probably writing and living in Ephesus right now. Ephesus was that church that was started through the Apostle Paul's ministry. And the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 that you read about, they were all kind of scattered uh, from the church in Ephesus. They were like daughter churches. And it's, it's probable that John was the elder that looked after the church in Ephesus. And he also had the concern of all those churches of Asia Minor that are mentioned in, in the book of Revelation. So he loves those people. He's got a true shepherd's heart. He's got a true pastor's heart. And so he is the apostle of love. He loves them enough to tell them the truth. He's not wanting this soft, sentimental, sappy kind of love that lets anything go and kills people spiritually in the process. He loves them enough to tell them the truth. Don't be messing with darkness from this world 
or you'll snuff out the light that God put in you. And so it is love he's talking about, but it's a love revolution. It's, it's like love that's backwards to what we normally would think of. It's love that tells you the truth. It's love that confronts you when you need to be confronted. And so he says, my little children, I love you like children. These things I write unto you. I'm not writing so you can say, well, Christians sometimes sin, so I guess it's no big deal. I guess I'll go out and just sin, and I can always repent. I can always confess. He said, no, 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 you've misunderstood. You've missed the point. I'm not telling you Christians sometimes make mistakes so you can make more mistakes. I'm telling you to warn you so you'll be on the lookout for the devil, and you'll be ready when he comes to try to tempt you. I'm writing these things to you that you sin not. It's not just that you risk being lost if you're living in sin. That's, that's part of it. But it's not just that. Even if you pray through, even if you repent, even if you confess, even if you get back to God in time to make it in the rapture and go to heaven and everything's good, you've lost some time when you could have been hassling the devil instead of letting the devil hassle you. You could have been digging deep in God's word instead of digging deep in the ditches of the world. And so he said, I'm writing to you that you sin not. But I want you to know something. Don't you dare beat up on yourself if you made a mistake. Don't you dare lay there and wallow in guilt and shame and self-pity, condemnation. Don't you dare. Because if any man sins, I don't want you to sin. I'm warning you against sin. I'm telling you that sin is like darkness that gets in there and it interferes with the light of God in your life. So I'm saying, I'm writing to you that you sin not. But the reality is, people make mistakes. The reality is, saints sometimes sin. And if any man sin, you remember something. Don't you lay there for one more minute than you have to because you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John says, while Christians do sin, they don't have to sin. It all depends on how close you walk with God, on how faithfully and consistently you walk in the light. But you remember that if you sin, you have an advocate to plead your case. We would say lawyer to plead your case. The Greek word is parakletos, and it means advocate. It means a mediator, an intercessor, one that is called alongside to help us. That's what it means. But did you know that John, when he wrote his gospel in chapter 14, 15, 16, I think, he uses this very same word in his gospel, parakletos. It's the same word in the Greek language, but our Bible translates it, the comforter. Do you know that this is what John's talking about? It's the Holy Ghost. Do you know who your advocate is? It is the Spirit of God that dwells in you. It is the comforter. It is the consolator. It is the Holy Spirit that lives in you. So if you sin, don't you lay there and let the devil grind his heels into your face and into your spirit. 
You start praying in the Holy Ghost. You may feel condemned, but you pray until the condemnation lifts. You may feel guilty, but you pray until the guilt lifts. You say, Jesus, I am so sorry. I've made such a mess. I confess it. I repent of it. Now, God, let me feel the Holy Ghost in me one more time. Let the fire of the Holy Ghost burn out this crazy sin. Let the fire of the Holy Ghost burn out everything that's not like you because I want to walk in the light more than I want to entertain any darkness. And I'll end with this verse tonight. He said, if you sin, you've got the Holy Ghost. You've got the Comforter. You've got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And then he says, and he, this Jesus that we love, this Jesus that we worship, this Jesus that we serve, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is not only our advocate, the one who defends us, the one who rises to help us when we fail. He's our propitiation. I guarantee you, you did not use that word at the dinner table today. Propitiation. That simply means he's our atoning sacrifice. His blood was shed and it appeased the wrath of a holy God against sin. His blood was shed and it cleansed us from every spot and stain and shame and guilt. He's our atoning sacrifice. His blood is the only thing that can cleanse our sins. But it's not something we hoard and hog here in the church. That we celebrate and say, we got it, nobody else. No, his blood is so powerful, it can cleanse the sins of anybody in the whole world that wants to come to him. You remember a story that Jesus told in the gospel. It just happened to be the gospel of Luke. There was a publican, a tax collector, a rank sinner. In fact, when they talked about tax collectors, publicans, they would actually say publicans and sinners because in their mind, a publican was worse than a sinner. So they put them in a separate category, publicans and sinners. And this publican went into the temple one day. He was such a mess. He, didn't only, he wasn't only hated by everybody around him, he hated himself. He hated what he was. He hated what he had become. And he walks into the temple one day to pray of all things. And he ends up standing beside this Pharisee just within the distance of his voice. He ends up standing beside this Pharisee who's got the church act down pat. He looks like he's walking in the light. He looks like everything's good. He looks the part. He acts the part. But he's hypocritical and self-righteous. So these two men end up in the temple praying side by side. A publican, a dirty, rotten sinner, no good, hates himself, and a Pharisee. And the Pharisee, basically his prayer is something like this. Oh God, I thank you that I've got my act together. I thank you that I'm not like sinners. And then he glances sideways and he says, and I especially thank you, God, I'm not like that rotten publican over there. And then the publican, he's praying beside that Pharisee. He doesn't even look up. The Bible tells us, Jesus said, he just bows his head. 
And he beats himself on the chest and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The word merciful there is the very same word. It doesn't sound so grandiose or complicated when the publican prayed it. Propitiation is the place of atoning sacrifice. In their Old Testament understanding, propitiation was the mercy seat where they went into the tabernacle or into the temple and the high priest sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. That was the place of propitiation. That was the place of the atoning sacrifice. And so what that publican prayed that day was, Jesus, I've heard about the temple. I'm not even worthy to stand in it. I've heard about the high priest. I could never measure up to something like that. But I've also heard that the blood gets sprinkled on that mercy seat once a year. He said, God, be a mercy seat to me, a sinner. That's what he prayed. And Jesus looked at his audience that day and he said, do you know who left the temple and went back home and was justified by God? Not the Pharisee who prayed the pretty perfect prayer, but the publican who prayed the sincere prayer from a broken heart confessing his sin. Jesus forgives us, brothers and sisters, not because he overlooks our sin. Jesus forgives us because he took our sin. Your sin and my sin hurts Jesus. Your sin and my sin is like the nails that were pounded through his body and nailed him to the cross. Our sin hurts Jesus. So it's not a casual thing to say, oh God, forgive me. It cost heaven everything to forgive you of your sin and to forgive me of my sin. But aren't you glad that when nothing else could help, God's love reached so far down into the slime pit of sin and it lifted us up and we get to walk in the light and live in the light and have fellowship with God and have fellowship with one another. And it's all because of Calvary. John was an eyewitness. He stood at Calvary when everybody else ran. He knew personally what it cost Jesus to forgive our sins. He knew it personally. And so when John says, if you sin, you don't have to lay there. You don't have to wallow in that sin and shame and guilt. I know that Jesus paid the ultimate price for your sin so you can get up. And don't you say, well, I'm a Christian. I knew better, so I guess God won't forgive me. John said, no, no, no. Saints sometimes sin. I'm writing to you that you don't. Stay away from sin. Keep away from darkness. Stay away. It hurts you. It makes you into a liar. Stay away from it. But if you stumble, if you fall, if you make a mistake, do not sever yourself from the light. Don't sever yourself from God because he's just waiting to be a mercy seat for you and to put his blood over your sin. Saints, I'm done, but isn't it a privilege to be able to walk in the light as he is in the light? And that gives us two great benefits. We have fellowship one with another. We get to be part of God's family around the world.
and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, continually cleanses us from all sin. Get out of my face, devil. You have no authority over my life. His blood paid for my life. His blood covers my life. His blood protects my life. Get away from me. I walk in the light now. <laughs> I'm done. I feel the Holy Ghost so beautiful and so strong uh, at home. Would you please participate in some way with us here in the sanctuary? Let's lift up our hands and our voices and thank God. His spirit is so beautiful. His blood is so powerful. His name is so worthy of your worship. Jesus has paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed me white as snow. Oh, I thank you, Jesus. Oh, I thank you, Jesus. I worship you, God. I worship you, Jesus. Lord God, I pray tonight for somebody that may be listening online, could be even somebody in the sanctuary, but they have a broken heart because of a mistake. They have a broken heart because of a failure. They have a broken heart because they allowed the devil to take advantage of them. Jesus, I pray for them right now. I pray for them like you prayed for your friend Peter. I pray that their faith would not fail. I pray that they would get back up. Peter denied you. He cursed and said he never even knew you. But you redeemed him in such a way that he preached the sermon on the day of Pentecost. Jesus, if you can do that for him, you can do anything for anybody. And so, God, I pray for somebody that's struggling, somebody that's failed or fallen, somebody that's racked with shame and guilt. I pray, Jesus, tonight that they would confess their sin and realize that your blood is ready to cleanse their sin, to cover their sin, and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. And just like that, it's over for the devil's influence. And just like that, they're living in the light. I thank you for that privilege. You've done that for me countless times in my life. And I'm forever grateful because I'm not worthy. And I'm sure not perfect, but in your sight, I am blameless and I am clean. And I thank you for it, Jesus. I pray it over your beautiful and precious people in your powerful and majestic name, in the name of Jesus.